Uh, so turn to Psalm number 39. We are nearing the end of the first book of the Psalter. The Psalter is comprised of 150 psalms divided into five books. And the first 41 psalms comprise book one, uh, consists largely of psalms written by David. Uh, they address personal matters in David's life and therefore make them applicable to us in the situations that we face. There's a connection in the last uh, four or five psalms of the first book of psalms. Last time uh, we compared Psalm 36, 37, and 38, and we found this progression of thought. Psalm 36 identifies the wicked or the evildoers. Psalm 37 gives the exhortation to wait for God. He will repay the wicked in, with justice in due time. And then in Psalm 38, David practices his own advice from Psalm 37, and he waits on God. He does not envy the fleeting prosperity of the wicked uh, that the wicked often enjoy in this life. And today, as we come to Psalm 39, we find that it shares many things in common with Psalm 38, the main idea, if you'll recall, was a few weeks ago, but the main idea of Psalm 38 is that suffering or, or discipline comes from the hand of God due to personal sin. This is a theme that is repeated in Psalm 39. We also see the theme of silent waiting in Psalm 38 and in Psalm 39. Waiting under suffering, waiting on God and under suffering. This theme of silent waiting is going to continue into Psalm 40, which we will get to next time. Also in Psalm 38, we saw that David is experiencing, a, a, he's frail, he's experiencing some kind of a severe illness. In Psalm 39, he contemplates the brevity of life. And this theme of sickness is going to appear again in Psalm 41, um, which is the last psalm of the book. Some believe that all of these Psalms, 36 through 41, were organized and put together because they have these repeated themes. Now, when I first read Psalm 39, I started to think about what am I going to pick out? What is going to be the theme of this sermon? Uh, there's certainly a number of themes. We see again discipline for sin. We see again uh, suffering. We see silence or waiting on God. And I can emphasize any of these. In fact, Thomas Brooks emphasizes uh, one aspect, the Christian silence while God is disciplining him. In his book, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod, which is based on verse 9 of this psalm. But as I studied it, the theme that I think this psalm calls us to consider foremost is the brevity of life. The brevity of life. As, as I read you the psalm, I want you to take notice at two selahs in the psalm, at verse 5 and verse 11. And they each followed the same word, the same Hebrew word, hebel, which, which is translated in the ESV as a mere breath. What a selah is meant to do is to cause you to stop, pause, meditate on this sobering thought. When he says every man is hebel, every man is a mere breath, a vanity. Uh, mentioned again in verse 6, the same word hebel, but translated there as for nothing. One commentator notes that this psalm is different from many other psalms because it resonates more with the book of Job and Ecclesiastes. And we're going to see 
that, as we just look at the, the last verse, for example, look at verse 13. This is how the psalm ends. It kind of ends on a low note. Look away from me, speaking to God, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now, this sounds a lot more like Solomon's pessimism than it does the typical praise of David in the other psalms. Well, let's read the psalm in its entirety. And again, listen in particular how David, David's struggle here. His, his struggle to summarize it is God's hand of discipline is so heavy. Why? Why would God discipline someone as a human being so meaningless and f- with a fleeting life? What is his concern with me? Why is it that he cannot just leave me alone for my 70 or 80 years of my fleeting life. That's kind of the attitude that the psalm brings out here. Psalm 39, beginning in verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for, for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know where, who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for you have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. As I said, this psalm has been said to be more like Ecclesiastes than psalms, more like wisdom literature than poetry. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the very first words of the preacher, who we know to be Solomon, is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or in the Hebrew, hebel hebelim, hebel hebelim hakol hebel. Vanity. The connotation of this word hebel is captured by the NIV's translation of the word meaningless, emphasizing that life is not only temporary, but it is also, there is a futility in life because of its brevity. Uh, When I preached the book of Ecclesiastes some nine years ago now, I can't believe it's been that long, I illustrated this in in a fascinating story that I had heard when I was in college biology class of a a woman by the name of Rosalind Franklin. Franklin dedicated her life to scientific research 
She went to school for many years doing significant research in the area of X-ray crystallography of DNA. She was responsible for the discovery of the double helix structure of DNA. Yet today, few students are familiar with the name Rosalind Franklin. They are, however, familiar with two other names, Watson and Crick. Watson and Crick used Franklin's data and published the double helix model of DNA in 1953, and they became the ones who were famous for it. Meanwhile, in 1958, Franklin died of ovarian cancer at the age of 37 in relative obscurity. Watson and Crick gained fame, and while their names may be familiar in some circles, today their bodies are lying in a grave, decaying somewhere. The reality of life is that in the end, even the most impressive of human achievements are going to be forgotten. Psalm 78, verse 33 tells us that life vanishes like a breath. James 4, 14 refers to life as a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, which is Solomon's kind of autobiography at the end of his life, he explains how he tried everything but always came up empty. He denied himself nothing in life. He gave himself all the self-indulgence that his flesh wanted. He educated himself. He, He looked to all the human justice systems, only to discover that at the end of the day, it was all just a striving after wind, that everything under the sun is meaningless, and at best, a temporary diversion. No longevity to it. It's here a moment and gone. The message of Ecclesiastes is everything in life is absurd. No matter what you do, in the end it comes up empty because you die and then you go in the grave. The only thing you have in life is what God gave you, so use it to the utmost. And you can't do anything about it anyway, and you have God to blame for it. It's kind of the summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Psalm 39 resonates with this same vibe. The psalm is titled, To the Chief Musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. So these are, again, this is chief musician. These are, again, the lyrics to some music. Jeduthun, named in two other psalms, is one of the musicians appointed by David to lead Israel's worship. In 1 Chronicles 16, he's mentioned, and 1 Chronicles 25. And this is a psalm of David. We don't know what time of life this was written. Perhaps it was in his latter years, but we don't know specifically. Verse 1 begins with David holding back a complaint, a protest. He doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the wicked, to the unbelievers that are around him. Look at verse 1. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David is struggling, struggling with God's providence in life, struggling with the the lot that God gave him in life. But he subjects his tongue to his better judgment. He doesn't want to be the cause of stumbling to those that are around him. Spurgeon writes this, he says, The firmest believers are exercised with unbelief, and it would be doing the devil's work with a vengeance if if they were to publish abroad all their questionings and suspicions. See, 
It was a, a, a good thing that David was muzzling his mouth in this condition of, of complaint and protest against God. In Psalm 38, we saw how David displayed silence before his accusers. He said, I am, I am like mute who does not open his mouth. The psalm indicates that David did well by not opening his mouth. And here again, he does well by not speaking while the wicked are present. Nevertheless, his passions are aroused. And he finally releases this protest directly to God. Look at verses 2 and 3. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. The silence that David is experiencing is not golden. He's holding something in. There's a fire in his heart. There's inner turmoil. His thoughts are exasperating him. But rather than explode, he finally releases his tongue, but not to man, but toward God. And there's a great truth in this. We can learn here for all of us by way of application that every believer at times are going to go through struggles, even, even struggles with unbelief. And we would do well to not flap off our mouths around unbelievers in those situations. And the key to keeping our tongue from sin before others is to speak often with God. God is patient. He will listen to our protests. Others, not so much. Protests and complaints before others usually lead to some kind of misunderstanding or gossip or judgment or some accusation. That's the consequence of our constant complaining before unbelievers. Unbelievers in particular are salivating over that. They're waiting for you to offer that protest. Atheists, agnostics, skeptics, unbelievers are willing to offer any rational uh, reason for your doubt or your suffering. I see this on social media. A Christian might be overly honest and they might share something about their struggles for everyone to see on social media. And always among the comments, there's some atheist or some agnostic who raises up their voice Some unbeliever calling the believer, forsake that fairy tale God of yours and embrace what is rational. And in this, I I see the same kind of attitude in, in Job's wife. When she sees the suffering of Job's life, what does she say to him? Curse God and die. That's her counsel to Job. Curse God and die. Brothers and sisters, take your complaints to God. He, he will never run out of of ear to hear. You can go to a very trustworthy Christian friend or a pastor, but never before unbelievers. Again, listen to Spurgeon on this. He says, it is well that the vent of his soul, talking about David, it is well that the vent of his soul was Godward and not toward man. Oh, if my swelling heart must speak, Lord, let it speak with thee. While it is wise to not voice our complaints against God in the hearing of unbelievers, nevertheless, we can and should bring our troubles before God directly. Now, the first three verses kind of serve as a preface. They're building up in the reader. He He's anxious. The reader is anxious to find out what is troubling David so much. What is it that's burning in his gut here? 
that he just can't keep in. He's got to let it out. Well, he's going to go on in verse 4. And his protest here is not as often about other human beings, whether the wicked or the righteous, but it's about God himself. His protest is toward God. Look at verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. What troubles David so is related to the brevity or the meaninglessness of human existence. See that in verse 4, show me how fleeting I am. In verse 5, my life is a few handbreadths. A handbreadth was one of the smallest units of measurement in ancient Israel. It was equivalent of a few inches. You made my, my life a few inches, basically. Verse 5, my, my lifetime is nothing, a mere breath. And here we are introduced to this word hebel, mere breath, translated. But it is a word that is difficult to translate, and that's why it comes up in different ways throughout the scripture. It literally refers to the vapor or the breath, a puff of smoke that comes out of your mouth on a cold day. It's there and gone. It's elusive. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, like the psalmist, agrees that life is like that. Life is elusive. It's unsubstantial. You can't get your hands on life. When you think you got it, it slips away. Like breath, it disappears as suddenly as it comes. And the older you get, the more you realize this is true. At now I am almost 60, looking back at life and realizing how quickly it went. Life is indeed a vapor. You who are younger here may not fully get that, but it is nevertheless true. Now it's one thing for David's son Solomon to discover this, and in light of his well-documented excesses and failures. But now we have David, David the champion, David the warrior, David the king, the poet, the Renaissance man. Now, if anyone thought could think more highly of himself, it was David, but yet he understands that at best his life is a mere vapor, a puff of steam. That's all it is. That's Selah at the end of verse 5. It comes up 74 times in the Old Testament, and it's meant to say, stop, meditate on what was just spoken. Meditate. The Selah for us is an appropriate call to pause and think about the shortness, the frailty of life. Understanding the frailty of life drives us to dependence upon God. As frustrating as the brevity of life is, verse 5 affirms that God has made it this way. See that? Look again at verse 5. Behold, you have made, Lord, you have made my days a few handbreadths. David knows that God did this. God has a purpose in the brevity of our lives. Now, it wasn't, we are, humanity was not created this way, but as a result of the fall, now God has a purpose in the brevity of our lives. God has made life short for probably many reasons. I can think of two off the bat. One is our fleeting life humbles us. We come to grips when we understand that we are mortal. It makes us realize that we're finite 
and that there is an infinite God who we need. It humbles us. Secondly, it gets us to consider the value of the commodity of time. If time on earth were an endless commodity, if you'd live forever, you can guarantee you would squander time. How many of us thought, well, I've got some time off, I've got some free time, and all of a sudden that time is gone, and you realize how much you wasted. Imagine it, for parallel, if you had an endless supply of money. Someone just gave you an endless supply. You can get whatever you want, you could buy whatever you want for yourself. You would do that. You would buy whatever you wanted because you just know to constantly be filling up, constantly be filling up. And yeah, you'd give a lot away too. Yeah, because why not, right? You got more and more coming in, so might as well give it away. But if that were the case, brothers and sisters, we would have no reason and no corresponding blessing to the idea, for example, giving in our need. I don't want that. But the scripture says you'll be blessed as you give in your need. Or learning the discipline of stewardship. All of these, all of these things benefit us. And it's the same with our time. We waste time even knowing how little we have. At times, especially younger, when we're younger, we think ourselves to be immortal. You know, we think we have all the time in the world to live. It's been said, uh, youth is wasted on the young, right? Who cannot look back on our years past and look at our lives and see the time that we have wasted, wishing we had that time back? We fail to understand the value of time. Many of us here could say, yes, we fail to understand the value of our time. But knowing that our time will run out motivates us to use our time wisely. Whatever time we have left, we want to use it wisely. That's why it was the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Why Why number our days? So that we get a heart of wisdom. If we fail to gain wisdom and humility by the knowledge of our mortality, and we choose rather to ignore the brevity and fleetingness of life, we become prideful old people. Old people who live like teenagers, thinking they're invincible. How foolish. How foolish. I I, I think of these rock stars. These old rock stars, all wrinkled and falling apart, and yet they're acting like they're in their 20s. How foolish. Yet so many of us, busy in life, working, trying to heap up riches in order that we could retire, only then busy in retirement, trying to catch up on the lost days of youth. And then suddenly your soul is required of you. Young people here, gain wisdom about the brevity of your life. Do it while you're young, and you will waste less time than many of us have. Your pursuits of worldly things under the sun, as Solomon would say, is vanity. It's useless. It's meaningless. What would it profit you, Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and then lose your soul for eternity? This theme of the brevity of life of Psalm 39 sounds a lot like the wisdom literature, doesn't it? Well, let's listen to what the New Testament book of wisdom, 
says in James 4, James 4 verses 13 through 16 captures our uh, attitude. What are, what is the attitude of a believer toward time? James 4 verses 13 through 16. He says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Back in our psalm, same idea. Look at verse 6. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Here again, for that, where you see that for nothing in the middle of verse 6, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. That's again the word hebel. Surely for vanity they are in turmoil. Same idea in the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Same focus. The empty accomplishment of human endeavors. Ecclesiastes 2, our old friend, Coelet, the preacher, Solomon, comes to the very same conclusion that David does in the psalm. Ecclesiastes 2, 18. Ecclesiastes 2, I'll read from 18 to 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it, to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be, a, will be wise or a fool. Yet, he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave up my heart and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man, verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, this is not the rambling of a foolish old man. These are hard life lessons learned the hard way by the wisest man who was ever born of male and female on earth. Listen to him. Young people, listen to him. You have a creator, a God who made you, who made you to honor him with his life. And there is no greater blessing that you can have than following Jesus at a young age and then holding fast to him to the end. Why go through such pain and suffering and hard lessons of more time wasted lost to sin and to this world You can give your life to serve him now. Why wait? How much vanity do you need to experience before you come around? Whatever age you are here today, if you are apart from Christ, I would plead with you to call upon the Lord and be saved. To seek him while he may yet be found. To forsake 
your worldly vain pursuits that are a mere breath and follow Jesus. He will give real, substantive meaning to your life. Christ alone will bring your life weight, importance, meaning, purpose, and hope. If you live for yourself at the end of this brief life, you're going to die and your body is going to decay in the earth. And your soul is going to go before God and you're going to give an account to Him. But if you live your life for Christ, everything done in His name will be remembered for all eternity and rewarded. Come to Him. Receive that gift of eternal life. A life that is entirely different in quality from the life that is centered on yourself, on your circumstances, maybe on your family. So much greater quality. And it goes on to eternity. And this brings us right into verse 7 so beautifully, which is the turning point of the psalm in a way, but not fully. But it does. he does express hope in the Lord, and he asks for forgiveness. Look at verse 7 and 8. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. So now, perceiving the shortness, the frailty of life, David lays up his hope in an eternal God, not himself. He sees himself as both a man of faith, he has hope, right, in verse 7, but also of transgression, verse 8. He needs deliverance from his sin. And these are kind of related. Because every one of us is, in the words that have been attributed to Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator, at once justified and a sinner. So you have him here in verse 7, my hope is in you, and, verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. The two are related. We have hope in eternal life because of the forgiveness of sins that is purchased for us on the cross. David doesn't know this fully, but he knows a little bit of what the Apostle Paul reveals to us in Romans chapter 7 and 8. In Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he recognizes his sinfulness. But then he recognizes the delivering power of God as he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he goes on to to start beautifully chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own Son. That's the good news, that you can have no condemnation, that no condemnation can be yours if you recognize your sinfulness, trust Jesus, trust his finished perfect work on the cross, dying for your sin and being raised for your justification. But without that pardon, your sin remains. And it remains as this thick, dark cloud that is separating you from God where you can't even hear him. And you have no hope. Put your hope in God. Now, as we come to verse 9, it appears as though David is going to reiterate some of the sentiments that he spoke earlier. But now it's only, it's, it's clearly 
God word, as we'll see. Look at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Now, David may not understand everything, but he knows God is personal. It's not some impersonal force in his life that brought about this trial. He sees God as sovereign in his afflictions. He's not blaming the devil. He knows this is God who has brought this to his life. This is where uh, verse 9, by the way, where Thomas Brooks writes his work, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod, which I quoted extensively last time. Let me, let me just quote extent, one, one time extensively from uh, Brooks' work on verse 9. I think it's, it's insightful. He writes, David's silence is an acknowledgement of God as the author of all afflictions that come upon us. There is no sickness so little, but God has a finger in it. David looks through all secondary causes to the first cause and is silent. He sees the hand of God in all and he sits mute and quiet. The sight of God in an affliction is an irresistible efficacy to the silence, to silence the heart and to stop the mouth of a godly man. Men who don't see God in affliction are easily cast into a feverish fit. They will quickly be in a flame when their passions are up and their hearts are on fire and they will begin to be saucy and make no bones of telling God to his teeth and they will, that they are, that they do well to be angry. Those who will not acknowledge God to be the author of their afflictions will be ready enough to fall into that mad principle that the devil is the author of all calamities. And if there be evil and affliction in a city, the Lord has no hand in it. If God's hand is not seen in the affliction, the heart will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. Those who can see the ordering hand of God in all their afflictions will, with David, lay their hands on their mouths when the rod of God is on their backs. Which are you? Which do you tend to be? See God's hand in affliction and fret and rage. I did this. God, the devil did this. Or do you see the hand of God ordering this in your life? If you do, You'll lay your hand on your mouth, as uh, David did in Psalm 38, as, as Job did at the end of Job. Now, this is the main theme of uh, Brooks's work, um, that a good father disciplines his children, j- disciplines the ones he loves. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, we did this a number of months ago, that discipline is for our good And the author of Hebrews understands that also that there is a paradox. On the one hand, he says, what son is there whose father does not discipline, right? He says, if you're left without discipline, you're an illegitimate child. But but he recognizes there's a paradox in Hebrews 12, 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, to those who are trained by it. So if God is disciplining you, if there's some trial in your life, he's treating you as his child. Uh, You would do best to be as David here. And like Job, put your hand over your mouth, be trained by it. Don't buck it. 
be trained by it. David seems to understand here that God has put him in this situation. He knows that God is disciplining him, but it is still painful. So he again opens up about this trouble that he's having in his soul about being disciplined. Look at verse 10 and 11. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth whatever is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. David prays this prayer from a place of weakness. I'm spent. You've taken everything away from me, Lord. Everything that's dear to me, you've taken away. And he pours out his heart to God and he prays for relief. He's feeling like God has taken everything away from him. But one thing he does not do to his credit here is he doesn't justify himself. Just like we saw in Psalm 38, he understands he deserves this. This is a chastening from God that he's receiving and he's going to learn from this. But he doesn't understand why is it so severe? Why so heavy? Why are you disciplining me, Lord, with such a heavy hand? Why? I'm such an insubstantial creature. I'm fleeting. Why? Turn to Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7. This very same paradox troubled Job. Job chapter 7, verse 16. Job cries out to God. He says, leave me alone. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone? Same thing that David says in Psalm 39. God, what do you want from me? Why can't you just leave me alone? Isn't my life short enough already? Well, the answer, my friend, in the words of Bob Dylan, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Meaning, what does that mean? It means the answer is like wind, easy to understand, but also utterly abstract. There's a paradox again. Yes, your life is fleeting. Yes, your life is short. But nevertheless, you are more than just a passing creature. You are different from the animals. Our journey on this earth is brief, but it is not inconsequential. Our lives have an eternal value. God has made you for eternity and for himself. And life only makes sense if you know that. Though the psalmist comes to this realization, he only partially soothes his complaint. He's kind of like Job, the end of the psalm, as we come to the final verses. The psalmist says the very same thing that Job says, Lord, turn away from me. Job put it this way. He said, how long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone? Same thing in verses 12 and 13. David says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. He cries out to God, the Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh. He asks him to answer him in his suffering. He has tears, tears that go to the Father's heart. 
Hold not your peace at my tears. A, a, a prayer that reminded me as I read it is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 12 continues, For I am a sojourner, I am a guest, like all my fathers. He's like Abraham, right? He's a, he's a guest on earth. Sojourner and guest were words that were used to describe the foreign residents within Israel. Abraham was the first to identify himself with that in these terms. Stranger, sojourner. David, though, was the king of Israel. If anyone had a claim to the citizenship of the land, it was David. Yet he knows this world is not his home. Even as king of Israel, his citizenship is elsewhere. And the New Testament teaches us the very same thing. That like David and like Abraham before him, we too are strangers, aliens in this world. Strangers strangers together in a world that is hostile to us. But that also is an encouragement. Because if you're a guest, if you're a sojourner in this world, it means that you do have a citizenship and a home somewhere else. If you're an alien here, it means you have a home somewhere else. That you're citizens of another city. And that's our comfort, brothers and sisters, in life and death. That on earth, or as Solomon would say, under the sun, life is hebel. Life is meaningless. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. It's insignificant. But there is a home that you have above the sun that is eternal. And it is your final reward. As we're going to sing at the end, one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to my home on God's celestial shore. We're sojourners here. We're strangers here. And for the very reason that we have an eternal dwelling place, a city not made by hands. Alas, however, this psalm, perhaps not surprisingly, based on what we've seen being like Ecclesiastes, it brings us back to the reality of life under the sun. As David in verse 13 believes that his chief problem is God's gaze, that God is scrutinizing him. Look at verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He's taking issue with the heavy hand of God upon him and he asks God, look away, give me a break. And so this psalm ends as life under the sun ends without resolution and it ends ultimately in death. Look away from me that I may smile again before I what? Before I die. That's what he means by depart and am no more. Life under the sun ends in death. And you can sense the tension, can't you, in this psalm? God is my only hope, verse 7. But his gaze will consume me, verse 13. When I think about the gaze of God, I think about the benediction that comes in Numbers chapter 26 that God would turn his countenance toward his people, bless his people. But the big question is how? How is the turning of God's countenance toward his people a blessing? Does not the presence of God bring terror? Did he not tell Moses, no one could see my face 
and live? How can God turn his face toward his people and that not only that they live, but that they experience a blessing, favor, grace, and peace? How is that possible? David doesn't understand this. We who are in Christ do. You see here the huge divide between the old and the new covenants. For David, under the old covenant, God is looking away at David's, from David's guilt. And that brings him some kind of relief that God is turning away from him. But in the new covenant, God, in a sense, looks away from Jesus so that we who are guilty might have his face turned toward us. That's the sad, sad irony of this psalm, is the conclusion that David makes is, is, not, is under the sun. It's in this world. From an earthly perspective, an unbeliever would say, why doesn't God leave me alone? Why doesn't he turn his face away from me? Then I'll be happy. I can live my life happy without his rules and his laws or his gaze upon me. Much of the world lives this way. Don't talk to me about God. Keep him away from me. But as believers, we live before the face of God. We live in his presence. And it is an utterly joyful experience. Robert Murray McShane said, A beam of God's countenance is enough to fill the heart of a believer to overflowing. It is enough to light up the pale cheek of a dying saint with the seraphic brightness, the angelic brightness, and make the heart of the lone widow sing for joy. That's what David doesn't get. And that's what we get in Christ. David doesn't understand the answer is his greater son. At other times he gets it in the Psalms, here he misses it. David asked the Lord, turn away, turn away your face from me. Jesus bore the agony of being forsaken. David is guilty, yet has his discipline lightened when God looks away. But Jesus is innocent, and he bears the complete punishment as God looks away. Much of this is hidden from David, but has been revealed to us in Christ. We understand, we understand how in the midst of trials and afflictions, God is using them for our good. We understand how the light of God's countenance is our blessing. And that is only possible in Christ. Only in Christ can God turn his face toward us and may it be a blessing to us. Don't take that for granted. You and I have what ancient Israel could never understand, the very presence of God, and that presence even within us. And it is vital that we understand this, particularly when going through pain and suffering, when going through trials of life. The emotions of Psalm 39 are real. Who is not identified with the emotions? The dark valleys of life where we don't understand what's happening, or you pray and pray and pray and pray for something, but you get no answer. Or it seems like God has given you the opposite of what you're praying for. Commentator Derek Kidner writes this. He says, like Job or Jeremiah, David can see no more than death and ask no more than respite. The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they're desperate. 
So as you meditate on Psalm 39 this week and read it for yourself, let Psalm 39 be your song in the night. Let it be your sunshine in the midst of a thunderstorm. When you find yourself doubting, you have a platform for your unbelief. It's not Twitter. It's not anyone human. God will listen to you. He alone can help your unbelief. Don't hesitate to go to Him. Go to Him in your pain, in your suffering. Don't shun His presence. His presence is not something for you to fear in Christ. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you.